0: Well, this morning we're starting a new series uh, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which, uh, in case you thought that this was a series on romance, you read that wrong. It's, it's Romans, um, Gospel of God concerning his son, um, written by a guy named Paul. My intention had been uh, to look this morning at the first seven verses of chapter 1, Of Romans, but I was reminded of something this week, uh, which is how many really basic things we often just assume people understand that they may not understand at all. And so, in fact, uh, this morning we're going to read verses one through seven, but we're just going to do a deep dive into verse one. You can say we're going to break your neck because that's not a very it's kind of shallow, right? Um, But why would we do that? Because you may not this morning even know who the author of this letter is. You, you may have never heard of Paul. Um, and if you have, it's possible that you don't really know much about him. And so what I'd like to do this morning um, is uh, to introduce you to Paul, the the writer of this letter, and then next week to introduce you to the letter itself. Is that okay? Is that fair? And so... Uh, this week, I just want to offer a basic answer to the question: Who is Paul? Who is Paul? And uh, would you stand with me and let's read then verses one through seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, who was Paul? Paul was not his given name. His given name was Saul. Saul is the Jewish or Hebrew version of the name the Greek name, Paul. Hebrew pronunciation was probably Shaul or Shaul. And what I want you to understand first about him is that he was a, before Christ, a Jew of pedigree. A Jew of pedigree. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives something of a, a resume. And at verse 5, he says this of himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The tribe of Benjamin was uh, an elite tribe, a prestigious tribe to be a part of. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In chapter 1 of Galatians, his letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So understand this, that that Saul before Christ was a Jew of pedigree. He He was a Jews, Jew, a uh, Hebrew's Hebrew. Second thing I'd like you to understand about Saul is he was a Roman citizen. And I want to read to you uh, from Acts 22. And I want to begin uh, at verse 22. Um, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's been telling the story of his conversion and his encounter with the risen Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But but uh, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And, and in verse 22, it says, Up to this word they, that is his Jewish audience, listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting, and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And the tribune is a not the Tacoma News Tribune, but this is a, a judge. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, picture that, stretched out to be whipped, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul was not only a, a Roman citizen, but a Roman citizen by birth. Not everyone got to claim that distinction. He was a Roman citizen. He was born into a family who were Roman citizens and in that case in that particular circumstance it it saved his life saul was also a scholar a scholar in acts 22 verse 3 we read this i am a jew paul again speaking i am a jew born in tarsus in cilicia but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you as all of you are this day. Now Tarsus uh, in Cilicia was a prosperous and prestigious city. It was just off the. Northeastern coast of the Mediterranean, if you can picture in your mind the a map of the Mediterranean, look up into the, the northeast corner, and uh, just to the north, uh, north border or, or the north shore of the Mediterranean uh, in modern-day Turkey, and um, Roman province of Cilicia. It was a center of Greek learning. It was a center of culture. It was the home of one of the three most outstanding universities, uh, in, uh, the Roman Empire. And, and so here's Saul. He's growing up in a, a prestigious city, in a Roman family, in a center of learning. And he was probably sent to Jerusalem when he was about 12 or 13, after he had been bar mitzvahed, which is probably when he first came under them, the mentorship of this man Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a renowned rabbi. He was, in fact, the grandson of another rabbi whose name was Hillel, who is probably the most one of the most famous rabbis in all Jewish history. And so there had to have been a screening process for those who got to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. That is to be mentored by him, to be taught by him. Um, so to have, to have had that privilege would have been a very, very high honor, not for just everybody. And and it's, and as we read, uh, Paul's letters, it's, it's clear that he was classically trained in Greek literature. Greek philosophy, as well as in the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, the rabbinical law, the Talmud, Saul uh, may have been not only one of the best-educated Jews of his time, but also one of the best-educated men of his day in general, with, with really the highest possible credentials in Greek and Roman and Jewish societies. Uh, this is a man of distinction. So, you know, we all have stereotypes about the people that we read about in the Bible. Um, understand this, that that, that Saul uh, was no lightweight. Uh, he, he was well known in his day. He was a man of significant influence, a man of uh, great learning. Uh, again, perhaps one of the best educated men of his day. Uh, add to that that Saul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee in, in Philippians 3.5 again in that little brief resume he provides in that letter. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. In Acts 23.6, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. So not only did he, was he born to a family of Roman citizens, his father and perhaps his grandfathers before him were part of the sect of Judaism known as The Pharisees, in Acts 26, verse 5, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, that label, Pharisee, is one that this elite sect of Judaism chose for itself. The word means separated. Just that, separated. The Pharisees viewed themselves as separated from the rest of Judaism, which they viewed as Morally, spiritually, religiously, theologically compromised. So separated from the, the, the rabble, as it were, and separated unto the law of God. And they were going to be the, the keepers of the law. Uh, not only in their conduct, but the defenders of the law, the interpreters of the law. And so they held themselves apart from everyone else, eventually came to view themselves as superior to everyone else, and if if you've ever read through the Gospels, you know it's the Pharisees that are the the blue meanies that are always kind of showing up. I'm dating myself with that expression. That's from the Beatles' "Yellow Submarine" movie. Remember the any of you old enough to remember the blue meanies that just keep showing up and and causing trouble. And that's kind of the way the the function of the Pharisees in the Gospels, because Jesus had more conflict with the Pharisees than with anybody else uh, in in that society of that day so Saul was one of them he was he was a part of that elite somewhat arrogant sect of judaism and then by trade Saul was a tent maker which seems always seems kind of anticlimactic to me after all this other really great stuff a guy made tents but a lot of people lived in tents and having tents was an important thing and so acts 28 1 through 3 uh, tells us that along with Um, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who were also tent makers by trade. Paul joined with them, and and, uh, I guess they made tents together. Sounds intense to me. So so a, a Jew of pedigree, a Roman citizen, a scholar, a Pharisee, a tent maker, and then finally a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of the church. Again, back to Philippians 3, he says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In Acts 8, verses 1 and 3, um, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Well, what, is, what was that day? That day was the day that Stephen, who was one of the first deacons of the church, and you can read this in Acts 6 and 7, and was stoned to death by... Uh, the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, uh, and and a number of others who were there, probably of Pharisees among them, and and it says that that Saul, it's our first introduction to Saul, that Saul was there when Stephen was stoned to death. Um, Saul was there holding the coats of those who, who who stoned Stephen and giving approval to that. So Acts eight again. Uh, 1 and 3, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging, ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was a violent man. In Acts 26, 9 through 11, Uh, Paul, looking back on that time, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, He believed that he was doing the will of God in opposing the church. He says, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So, you know, if you, if you want a modern equivalent, think of the most violent terrorist you can think of today, and that was Saul in his day, in relationship to this new movement of people who were following this crucified rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, calling themselves the Way. And it was Drawing Jews away from Judaism and into this new way of believing, this new way of thinking, and Saul felt completely justified in crushing that movement and uh, spared no expense and, and spared no measure in doing that. Well, as you probably know by now and are anticipating, Saul didn't stay in that in that. Circumstance or in that frame of mind, because there came a day as he was on his way to a city, uh, the city of Damascus, uh, Syria, to confront more Christians there, that he had an experience of the risen Christ. And he um, describes that, Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. In other words, he He'd gotten full authorization to do what he intended to do. At midday, O king, he's speaking to to Herod Agrippa, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now imagine that moment, will you? That that Saul, with, with perfectly clear conscience, was going about the work that he was doing of trying to crush this movement. And now he's hearing the voice of the risen Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul, I've got some work for you to do. And, and all that's gone before, that's in the past now. Stand up, Saul. I've got work for you to do. So that's Saul, B.C. Who was Paul? AD Paul, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the Greek version of the name Saul. He probably pronounced something like uh, Paulos or Paulo. Saul probably changed his name to Paul for, for the same reason that missionaries working in cross cultural settings today make similar accommodations to remove cultural Barriers. I remember being on a short-term mission in Ukraine one time and, and, uh, we're playing volleyball and one of the guys, one of the Ukrainian guys says, uh, what is this name, Jim? Actually, a Dijim. What is this name, Dijim? And I thought for a minute, and all I could think of was Yakov Smirnov, the comedian, right? And, and his, that's the name James in, in Russian. So I said, Yakov? Ah! Yakov, and and from that time I was Yashi. That's the diminutive of of Yakov. Yashi, and they all called me Yashi. But the change of name for Paul from Saul to Paul was was really a, a, more of a cultural accommodation. There's there's no point in which we would read that that God said you were Saul now you should be Paul. It's simply simply the same name, different cultural setting. And, and I'm sure that Paul didn't want anything to interfere with the effective communication of the gospel to the Gentiles. By, by the way, what's a Gentile? A Gentile is, is anyone who's not a Jew. So how many of non-Jews do we have here today? Okay, so you're all Gentiles. This is a Gentile church. Paul tells us three things about himself in this first verse of Romans, chapter 1. First of all, he tells us that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. How many of you know that self-perception determines conduct? The way you think about yourself is the way you choose to act. In most cases, that's true. How you understand yourself is is the determiner of, of how you behave, how you relate to the world. And Paul's telling us here, who he perceives himself to be and therefore how he can be expected to conduct himself and so he says first of all i am a servant of christ jesus the word there is the word doulos and it means not just servant but slave slave in 1 corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 paul says this is how one should regard us speaking of himself and the other apostles as well as his his uh, the team that he worked with. This is how one should regard us as servants, slaves of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this term "servant" is a certainly a title of humility, but it's also a title of honor. There are a number of men in the Old Testament who were referred to as servants of God, and it was an expression of honor as it applied to them: Abraham, Moses. Joshua, uh, David, the prophet Isaiah, and then Isaiah himself pointed in chapter 53, verse 11 of his of his uh, prophecy uh, as God's righteous servant. So no wonder that when Jesus came, he said of himself, "I am among you as one who serves." In another place, he said, "I have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom." For many. In each of those instances in the Old Testament, that term servant carried a sense of both honor and Humility. And so Paul's not claiming honor necessarily in referring to himself as a servant of Christ because in places like 1 Corinthians 3 5 and 1 Corinthians 4 1, he spoke of himself as a servant in the most humble and lowly of terms. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4 1, the term that he uses is, is actually a different term that meant one who was a galley slave. It was the term that was used of, uh, of men who rowed or were rowers in the, the Roman ships in the underneath the, the Roman trireme. Um an under-rower is the literal literal translation, a man who had no life of his own. So a slave has has no claim of authority over his own life. He or she belongs to a master. And Paul understood that he was a man under authority by the way men that's the title of our the theme of our our men's retreat a man under authority and uh, I hope that you're planning to attend that wives kick them out not only no food no TV no affection that weekend nothing <laughs> no attention nothing uh, kick them out and uh, send them to men's retreat one of the places where Paul expressed that truth is in first Corinthians first Corinthians 620 where he wrote, You don't own yourselves. God paid a very high price to make you his. So honor God with your body. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and then secondly, Paul called to be an apostle. Uh, the Greek word there is kletos, called. Uh, and, and and in this case it has the this the sense of having been called Directly by Christ Himself. And then that second word, apostles, the word apostolos, it, it literally means one who was sent. So we would use it of a missionary today, or more precisely, maybe of an envoy, an ambassador. Um, in, in Mark 3 13 through 15, Uh, Early in Jesus' ministry, we read this. He, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called, see the word called? Called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed, see the word appointed, he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be, first of all, with him, and that he might send, see the word send, send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So as we read that those few verses, we begin to see some of the qualifications of an apostle, which in a broader a broader list would, would include things like this that they were called, first of all, personally and directly by Jesus himself. First requirement of of one who used the bore the title uh, apostle in the narrow sense an apostle of Jesus that he was called personally and directly by Jesus himself secondly uh, a qual- uh, an apostle had to have been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry his baptism for example right on through the resurrection to his ascension into heaven and and we see that in in uh, acts chapter 1 where we read about the man who was uh, the selection of the man who would replace Judas Iscariot Uh, among the 12 apostles. And you remember that uh, that Judas betrayed Jesus and in his grief went out and took his own life. And so the apostles said, we need to replace him with someone else. There needs to be 12. And so uh, they chose a man named Matthias. But in that conversation, they said that, that we need to choose a man who has been who's gone in and out with us, with Jesus, from his baptism to his ascension. The third qualification of an apostle was that they were personal eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they had to have seen him alive, uh, not, not necessarily the moment of the resurrection, but have having seen the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. And fourth, that they were, had been given direct revelation of God's word to proclaim it with authority, that there had been a, a direct commissioning and a direct um, revealing of of God's word. And then finally, that they were given power and authority from Jesus to heal and to cast out demons. So as we go down that list and we say, do all those things apply to Paul? Could he legitimately claim to be an apostle because he wasn't part of that original group of 12 and he wasn't one who was replaced by Matthias. He wasn't even a believer yet. But we see here clearly that Paul was personally called by Jesus himself. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected glorified Christ as he encountered him there on the road to Damascus. He was personally taught by the Lord. We read that he went into Arabia at some point early on after his conversion and and was taught by the Lord. Uh, And we also see Paul exercising apostolic power and authority. He he cast out demons. uh, He healed the sick. He even raised a young man named Eutychus from the dead. So his claim was... Was a claim out of time to use his own word. One, as one untimely born. He said, I was a Johnny come lately to this whole party. But, but Jesus himself appeared to me, called me, commissioned me. And so th- to the Ephesian believers, Paul wrote that along with the word of the Old Testament prophets, the teaching of the apostles became the foundation on which the church was built. And so you think about this, that Paul's letters comprise over half of the New Testament. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Some people believe Paul wrote Hebrews. So his teaching is pervasive Uh, in the church today. And the authority of the apostles extended beyond the local communities of believers, far beyond um, what they ever anticipated, to the entire believing world. It's the teaching of the apostles that continues to be the foundation of the church, chief among them, Paul. So Paul, a servant of Christ, Paul called to be an apostle, and then third he says, Paul set apart for the gospel, set apart for the gospel. Um, The word that that is used here, the Greek word that translates set apart, literally means separated and appointed. And and ironically, it's the same root from which the word Pharisee comes, one who is separated. And and as a Pharisee, Saul, Saul had set himself apart from the law, or set him sorry, him set himself apart for the law. As an apostle, Paul was set apart for the gospel. Um, set apart from people, set apart for the Gentiles. Uh, and, and he says, I was set apart from God by from birth. Um, Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul says, He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And there isn't a, a greater summary of Paul's whole testimony than that. He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so Paul had this this profound sense of having been set apart by the Lord, that, that he was now living out the life that God had 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 intended for him uh, from the very beginning, uh, even before he was born. And then notice this in Acts 13, 2-3, that he was not only set apart by God from birth, but he was set apart by the Holy Spirit through the church. Acts 13, 2-3, while they were worshiping, and this is now that the church in Antioch. That uh, very international church, Antioch, Syria, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul? Notice the prepositions I know I know it's nerdy to even point to it, but but would you notice set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them? He called them with a purpose very specific purpose in mind. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They were sent. They called, set apart, sent. And so, so amazing. Years ago, um, when I had black hair, I was working on my working on my master's thesis. We were living in Vancouver, Washington at the time when I was going over to Western Seminary in Portland uh, to use their library. And um, I read an article at the time in, in which the writer of the article said, um, most pastors, most missionaries, cannot substantiate a specific call of God expressed through a local community of believers in other words those who had gone into full time ministry whether pastors missionaries evangelists other other kind of christian workers that the vast majority could not point to any community of believers that had affirmed their calling affirmed their giftedness and literally kind of sent them to become uh, the the person that they thought they ought to become and that seminary was the means to that and i thought well, i'm going to test that out i thought that was kind of an interesting thing and and so uh, I would take a brown bag lunch and I would sit in the library and eat my lunch with the seminarians, and and I began to ask them this question. So, what community of believers sent you here? And and it was amazing this the blank stares that I got back. You know, what are you talking about? Well, well, what what community of believers? What do you have a local church that said, man, you're gifted to this? You we we. Clearly, sense a call of God on your life, and and you really need to go. We're sending you. Um, no, what are you talking about? So I'd say, well, why are you here? How how did you happen to choose? Well, I just I just sensed a call from God. Well, that's interesting. Paul would say I was I was set apart before I was born, but the commissioning came through the church. And and so, such an important little piece here that that the spirit spoke to the church didn't just speak to Paul spoke to the church and said hey set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them and and so they did that it was an act of obedience for the church to do that by the way if you ever want to do an interesting study of a person in the Bible study the life of Barnabas won't take you very long there aren't that many references to him but Uh, When you do, you will come to the understanding that he was probably the second most important person in the New Testament, second only to Jesus. Uh, Without Barnabas, there's no Paul. Without Barnabas, there's no church. Barnabas was a significant man uh, in the lives of uh, many in the early church. And so check it out. Uh, He was also an incredible financial steward Uh, who gave generously to the work of the mission of the church. So Paul, servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. How does that apply to any of us? I just want to just close with this, and this is you, A.D., all right? This is you, AD. You in the year of our Lord. You in the time of the church. You in the time of the gospel. You after Jesus has arrived on the scene. And I want to direct you to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And I want to, I want to just say, I want, to, I want you to think about what we've talked about here with regard to Paul And think about how it applies to you and how it parallels Paul's experience because Paul himself said to the church in Ephesus, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Paul would never have taken credit For his salvation. It wasn't what he was looking for. It wasn't what he was hoping for. It wasn't anything he ever anticipated. Christ intersected his life. The same is true of any of us who've come to faith in Jesus. It isn't because we were such great people. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's because he loved us and gave us the gift by his grace. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. God's work of art. The Greek word there is poema, is the word from which we get our word poem. It means a work of art. You are, we are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. We are the the ones he is sculpting. We are the ones whose lives he is painting. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. See, Paul's describing his own experience. He's also describing the experience of everyone who is drawn into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We can't take credit for it. We didn't choose it. It's all a gift from God. See, I don't know what it's going to be like when we when we arrive in heaven. It's going to be totally different than any of us thought. I'm pretty sure of that. We're not going to stand at some cheesy pearly gate. We're not going to sit on clouds with harps. St. Peter won't be there with a, you know, sitting at a desk. But we will be judged. And the judgment will be very simple. The Bible says there's a book called the the Book of Life. And, And in the Book of Life, the name of everyone who has been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, everyone's name will be written And those who have not trusted in Christ will not find their name there. It will be like going to a fancy restaurant and saying, can I have a seat? And they'll open up the book and say, do you have a reservation? Well, no, I don't have a reservation. Well, I'm sorry, we can't seat you. And the way that our name gets written down in that book is simply through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, All who call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. It says, he who has the Son has life, he who did not, does not have the Son does not have life. He who, he who does not have faith in the Son will not find his name written in the book of life. The question will be simple. Is your name written down in heaven? Your name doesn't get written down there because you attended church. Your name doesn't get written down there because you're such a great person. Because on... On balance, you're better than your neighbor. God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on a one perfect standard, and that is the standard of His holiness, the perfect righteous character of Jesus Christ. Your name isn't written down in the Lamb's book of life because you were baptized or because you take communion or because you attend church more often than others, because you are married in the church. None of that matters. Serving in the church, being the most prolific servant in the entire church, doesn't get you into heaven. None of that matters. One thing matters and one thing alone, and that is that you have put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. You've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. See, Paul understood that there was a person that God had in mind for him to become when God first thought of him. And in retrospect, he looked back and he said, you know, all that stuff that I thought was to my credit, that was just compost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And now I'm living the life that God had in mind for me. I'm, I'm becoming the person that he has set me apart to be from birth. But without Christ, I never could have become this person. I never could have accomplished these things. I've told you the story about the little old lady in my church years ago when I was a youth pastor right out of college. They actually allowed me to preach one time. They didn't ask me it again for quite a while after that. <laughs> but this little lady in our church, a little frail old lady, white hair, glasses, cane, classic old lady, hair pulled up tight into a bun, came to me in the foyer of the church after I had preached that questionable sermon and said, Pastor Jim, my prayer for you is that you will become as beautiful a person as you were when God first thought of you. never forgotten that moment. Never forgotten what she said, word for word. See, there's a person that God had in mind for you to become. And apart from Jesus Christ, you can't become it because sin stands in your way. And when you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, when you trust in what he accomplished at the cross... His blood shed for you. His body given for you. He standing, hanging in the balance, hanging between heaven and earth in your place. When you put your faith in that, you become you, A.D. You in the year of our Lord. You you in the, the new life. You becoming the masterpiece that God has in mind for you to be you accomplishing the things that that he he has designed that only you would accomplish in your generation. So the question this morning is, have you trusted in Christ? Do you even have a chance of becoming that person? Because apart from Christ, you will never realize the person that God intended you to be. So my hope today, my prayer for you, is that you would come to know Jesus as your personal Savior, that you would trust in Him, that you, that you would ask Him. And it doesn't mean you have to understand a lot of theology. The only thing you really need to understand is this, is that you are sinful and separated from God, and that Jesus Christ is your only hope. And when you accept that truth, and when you place your faith in Him, your life will, be, will never be the same again. Let's pray together, Lord. We thank you for this uh, this Saul guy, this terrorist, this crazed lunatic that you transformed. And Lord, uh, if if you can change a guy like that, a murderer, if you can change a guy like that, you can change any of us. And Lord, I pray for each one here today that you, Holy Spirit, would speak into their lives quite apart from even maybe their desire. But Lord, you would set your affections on them, that you would extend your grace to them, that you would grant them the gift of faith that would lead to a new transformed life. And beyond that, a hope of heaven. And that today might be the day. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.